0: Welcome to Back in Control
1: Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Uh, David, I understand you have a special guest in the studio today. I do. I'm very excited about having him. He's uh, one of my favorite people. Um, his name is Martin Moisey. He's a neurosurgeon. He's a chief of spine surgery at Detroit Receiving Hospital. And we go back a long ways, probably five or six years now. And he's one of my fellows. And we're very proud of what he's done, what he's accomplished. He is a superb surgeon. He's also been extraordinarily open to learning and teaching. And I brought Mark on today, and this will I'm sure will be many of few, one of many future podcasts with him, because his insights are quite remarkable. But right now, he's actively training many neurosurgical residents and fellows. He's in the trenches as chief of neurosurgeon at Detroit. And he has a lot going on, but I wanted him to discuss his background, how he came into our program as Swedish and some of his evolution of thinking and, and uh, looking forward to talking to him. So anyway, welcome, Mark. Appreciate you having on the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a privilege uh, to collaborate with you again, uh, uh, Dr. Anskim.
1: So Mark, what, uh, just give us a little background about how you found out about Swedish, where you were at in your training, and when you came in, when we first met, where was your general view of surgery, indications, performance, et cetera? What was your general outlook at that point when you first started? What, how many years ago? Is that six years ago, four years ago? It's
0: six years, yeah. We met in uh, January of 2013 when you interviewed
1: me. Okay, wow.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost a lifetime ago at this point.
1: One of us is getting old quickly here, aren't we? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, you know. So back when we met in uh, 2013, uh, I was a resident, and as many residents in uh, the U.S. Uh, studying neurosurgery, you know, our, our our training doesn't just evolve around the uh, the spine. Right, we we take the entire neuroaxis, and that's no different than orthopedic training. You know, you choose to subspecialize in something. You know, you deal with uh, in orthopedic surgery, you would deal with all the bones, and in neurosurgery, you do deal with all the neuroaxis. But as as you've taught me, and we've discussed this through the years, this this isn't a uh, a, a one dimensional uh, uh, one dimensional uh, program. When you look at the spine, it's, a multi, it's something very multidisciplinary. When you start looking at it as a resident, you see the nerves, you see the bone, and you see the pathology. But then, you know, lo and behold, we start talking to the patients and re- realize how different that is. You know, it's, it's not fixing a picture, but treating symptoms and helping a patient and changing their lives for the better. When initially um, I was trained, what I used to see is, okay, patient has symptoms patient has this um, on a scan. let's go fix it in the operating room you know uh, and my thought process was, okay, great this is really easy you know I, I see something on a scan I talk to the patient next thing you know you fix it. but looking through you know the um, you know at uh, it, it my uh, past and seeing how some of these patients did, you know the the one problem with residency is you don't get that three-month, six-month, six-year follow-up of your patients. right? So all you get is a three to four- day, maybe a two-week, maybe a four-week um, recovery period, and you say, "Hey, what I did was a great job." But when you look at these patients long-term, that may not necessarily be the case. And having had a a very distinct interest in the biomechanics of the spine, I seeked out a place where I could really learn about it. And um, the way I did that was um, I uh, reached out to the Swedish Neuroscience Institute um, and you know, fortunately you and uh, the rest of your partners and colleagues took me on and the rest is just history at this point.
1: How is your, now you've been in practice for a couple of years, think back, and I don't think it's just your residency training, just in general with residency training, you're right, it's a very small snapshot of a patient's life. And I will tell you as an orthopedic resident, I was not really trained in non-operative care. And I honestly had no clue how important non-operative care was, and surgery was just one of those tools that you use to solve a patient's problem, and in isolation really wasn't that effective. What are some of your paradigm shifts as far as the non-operative care paradigm?
0: So it's completely a 180. Uh, Now I actually spend my time in clinic trying to convince patients that they don't need surgery rather than that they need surgery. And um, one mantra that um, we kind of live by is the decision's more important than the incision. You've always taught me that, you know, with enough training, most surgeons will be able to complete any surgical procedure that they've been trained to do. Now, choosing the right patient and getting phenomenal outcomes is something that, isn't as easily trained and that's through experience
1: right what's happening in medicine in general you know we have super specialization so we tend to as surgeons say well the rehab's part of his artist role or the primary care role and we'll, t- we'll take care of the surgical role but you know i keep reminding myself and my fellows as you well know you know that we're physicians we're not technicians and there's a real tendency in medicine and i, I think part of the deal is i started out in internal medicine so in medicine there's a much longer time frame of follow-up and so I always follow my patients indefinitely. I, I never quit following patients. And, you know, fortunately, most of them did well, and I, they, went, they quit coming back. But, but patient did poorly, why, why would I get to live with them forever? And I think the trend has become increasingly more, even though when I was a resident, that once you've done the surgery and done the three-month follow-up, regardless of how the patient's doing, you're done, right?
0: I I completely agree. That's unfortunately what's uh, turning our into our healthcare system. But what one of the things that, you know, you asked me how my practice has changed. My practice itself is a multidisciplinary practice where it's not just me. It's not just the pain specialists. It's not just the internists. It's a patient centric practice where I tell all my referring physicians, I want to meet the patient from day one. And that doesn't mean I'm going to offer them surgery. I'm just going to be their cheerleader and push them in the right direction to optimize their care, whether it's through pain control, whether it's through uh, using um, uh, people like Dr. Howard Schubner, who I work with very closely in town, physical therapy. Ultimately, the goal is not to fix a scan, but to fix their symptoms and uh, improve their quality of life.
1: Yeah, I think we've also learned that, you know, oftentimes these bone spurs have been there for many, many years, but the symptoms may have started just a few months ago, something changed. And what I find remarkable, and I only figured this out the, the, maybe the last 10 years, is that people have unbelievable situational environmental stresses. And so what's changed, the bone spur is still there, but what's changed is the body's chemistry around stress. And just ask a simple question about, you know, what's going on um, is pretty critical. And again, in medicine these days, we're not really given the time to talk to the patient. In fact, we're actually discouraged to talk to our patients. And you told me some stories. Um, I won't mention the setting of uh, some of the, I mean, I don't know what it's like in your town, but there's also in many places, if not most, a very strong trend to make the surgical decision on the first visit.
0: I agree. Um, I think it goes back to your initial statement that we're not given enough time. So instead of spending the time and learning what's going on in the lives of the patient, we tend to hurry it up, see if the symptoms match the scan, or even worse, there are some practices that won't even see the patient if they don't have a scan or don't have pathology on a scan. These patients then at that point have their you know, they're painted uh, against the wall and they, they have no, no out, they have no way of getting better, they don't know what's going on. The physician that they trust their opinion won't even see them, so what are they supposed to do?
1: What I'm excited about, I mean, I'm one of those surgeons who's been on both sides of the fence and I came out of my fellowship on fire and I felt guilty if I couldn't do that surgery. I'd make the des- decision on the first visit Seattle had nine times the rate of spine surgery per capita as any place in the country when I first started, and I was a zealot. I thought that we needed to to, to do surgery on everybody. I didn't have a clue about non-operative care, and I feel great about being part of your training to help you sort of see that perspective much earlier than I did, because I really spent at least eight years doing this aggressively, and I just couldn't figure out why everybody wasn't doing this perfectly well since I'd done the definitive operation. And so, no, it's, it's great to see you, you know, adopt that so sort of on a career. Plus, you're in a you know, really hugely responsible position for training. How, ma- how many residents are you training right now?
0: So we have 14 residents, two a year in our program, and it's a seven-year program. And we're actually looking to opening up possibly even a, a fellowship program at some point.
1: Okay, nice. What are the – can you give some examples of – Just some situations you've seen where you've seen surgical decisions made on the first visit. I I know there's a couple of cases you actually, as a resident, actually stopped the process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, both as a resident and as a physician, I could give you, as an attending, I could give you uh, numerous examples. One um, that really kind of struck a chord with me was uh, a young lady uh, had a, a car accident and was told uh, at an outside hospital that uh, she needed a fusion. She had some neck pain, but on the actual MRI that I reviewed with her, there was just a little bit of inflammation. There were no fractures and nothing else going on. And she was told she needed a three-level fusion at that point, which, you know, to for the layman, you know, that's putting in, uh, you know, screws and rods and changing the biomechanics of the spine to stabilize it if necessary. Right. So my first question with her was, you kind of hit the nail on the head a couple of minutes ago, was, what's going on in your life? And she starts, you know, I, I actually got into a car wreck. My, my daughter was with me. It was horrible. And I said, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty significant. Um, and I asked her a very simple question. I said, do you drive now? She said, she just looked at me in in total surprise and said, why would you ask me that? Well, I said, you know, first answer the question. She said, yes. And I said, well, when you're driving, do you white knuckle? And the look on her surprise completely doubled. She said, how did you know? And I said, well, when did that start? She said, since the car accident. Well, I said, you know, I, I... I I want you to trust me that you do not need a surgical intervention at this time, or maybe ever, and just try a different type of therapy. She went to see our colleague, Dr. Howard Schubner. And after three months, she came with a wide smile on her face and said, I am pain free. I said, well, do you still white knuckle when you drive? She said, I haven't in weeks.
1: Wow, what it, what was the um, essence of what he what is he he where is the essence of what he did with her did he did she share with you were some of the things that she that he did with her?
0: She she mentioned that you know he kind of started from the basics you know went to the day of the accident and then just kind of built up on that to the to where she was able to drive she was able to do all her regular activities just through her through his process
1: right could you describe so i just want to emphasize what mark just said about the three level fusion so neck fusion is a big deal you do change the biomechanics so there's a high chance and she's pretty young right you said in her 30s she
0: was in her late
1: 40s 40s okay so within about five to ten years the spine starts breaking down especially at the three level fusion you have quite a long stiff segment middle part of the spine then this the breakdown problems are severe Essentially, she was being recommended to have surgery on a normal spine, correct? Yes. And you look at the difference in the outcome. So no cost, no risk. She's now pain-free, full function of her spine, and she's doing fine. And as you well know, this is exactly the reason why I quit spine surgery really at the peak of my career, because I would see variations of this situation, you know, three to five times every week. I would feel fortunate if I could get to the patients like you just did before they had any surgery. But often patients have had these huge surgical interventions that they've had a complication with, or they've broken down, or their pain is just a lot worse, and they're still salvageable. But again, they've gone through all sorts of cost, risk, suffering associated with surgery. And I think it's also interesting, it's so illogical to walk into a physician's office and have a surgical decision made on the first visit. It just doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, you don't know the physician; they don't know you, they don't know the background. And as you and I both know, when you're under stress, which all of us are to some degree, it changes the body's chemistry and alters the perception of pain. And then when you have the additional accident or work-related injury, et cetera, it just increases your stress, which affects every cell in your body, which increases the pain. And so it's remarkable that somehow medicine is sold the bill goods to the, our society that everything has a structural cause. We're probably over 90% of pain does not have an identifiable structural cause. I mean, it's pretty remarkable.
0: I, I completely agree. Um, you know, I, I, I compare that, I tell, and we've had this discussion on, on numerous occasions, anxiety and pain fibers run down the same fibers in the brain. And one common example I tell my patients is, if I put glue on your feet and I told you to stand in front of a door and I'm going to open the door very quickly and it's going to hit you. Would you not all of a sudden get pain in the back of your neck? Just trying to avoid getting hit in that forehead. They say, of course. Then I tell them I'm going to take the glue off their feet, tell them to sit on the other side of the room and still open the door. Then what happens? Are you still having the neck pain? Well, they say, no. Uh, why, why would I? And then I would ask them, well, have I operated on you in the, in the interim? They said no. Well, do you have anything structurally uh wrong at this time? They say no. <laughs> well then I ask them, Well, then what happened? They said, Well, I, I I think it's probably the anxiety. And I told them, our bodies are playing tricks on us with the anxiety, such that our our normal fight or flight response from when we were not living in homes. And we were out wandering around the forest, and we were wondering, is the rustling in the trees? What is that? Is that a animal about to jump out and 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 pounce on us, or is it just the wind? And our body's natural response to that is creating this this fear.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. No, I'm excited. So yeah. No, I hundred percent agree. So we got about five more minutes here. I just want to just take a deep breath back and just think about the next five years. What are some of the things that you like to see in change in your? Let's just about, talk about your program, for instance. Just things you like to see change. So I know you're already made a lot of changes where you're at, remarkably quickly. But what's some? What's some part of your vision of how you want to see spine surgery change for a given patient, for general patients in general?
0: Uh, the first and most important thing is what we've been talking about this whole time is not making a decision on the first um, meeting. What I tell all my patients is I want you to go home, think of more questions because what happens with a lot of patients is they are only gonna remember about 10 to 15% of what we're actually telling them. They're gonna be so, so fixated on what's going on and what's going on on that scan that they forget about everything else. Right. I want them to bring in family members. I also want them to consider that there are many other different ways of getting their pain under control. And what I tease them about every time is if I get you better with conservative management, I'm still going to take full credit for it, even though you put in all the hard work. Right. You know, and, you know, it's it's important to develop that relationship with your patient. I think. You know, If if you were walking down the street and a a gentleman or or a lady said, I'm going to stick a knife in your back, the first thing you're going to do is call the cops. Right. However, you're perfectly fine walking into a person's office that has these distinguished pieces of paper up on a wall and say, okay, I met you for four and a half minutes. Let's go for it. Why don't you do a a nine-hour surgery that will supposedly change my life for the better? Right. So I think if we could just change ourselves as a spine specialists, I don't even want to use the word surgeon. I want to use spine specialists because the team does not consist just of the surgeons, but it includes everyone. It includes their physical therapist, includes their uh, physiatrist, it includes their internist, and it includes their families. And most importantly, it includes this, the patient. If they're willing to engage in their own spine care, they're going to improve no matter what.
1: Right. Can you describe in just brief detail about how much difference you can see with a good solid structured care program? I mean, when I was a resident, we did physical therapy and injections, and that was about it. But I, you know, the data shows only about 20% of physicians are comfortable treating chronic pain, and less than 1% enjoy it. And as you know, tr- you know, treating chronic pain has been by far and the most enjoyable part of my practice and career, which is shocking. I was like everybody else. I get really frustrated. And I didn't know what to do. The problem is most physicians aren't trained in the correct paradigm that chronic pain is a neurological problem. And, that is, and I know you've been exposed to it before and after the training. Can you just give a quick overview about the differences you see if a person does take charge of their own care?
0: Absolutely. The patient that actually takes charge of their own care are the ones that are willing to accept this multidisciplinary approach. The ones that are not, that want the quick fix, are the ones that are going to seek out if they if you're not going to give them the answer you want, they will eventually seek out someone else and they will eventually get that surgery for the quick fix. And that's not the patient that's really going to get the optimized care and really get as good as they should be. Right. What one one of the, the issues I've had is um, recently uh, I got a, a scan of a patient uh, that went across my desk, and I was I was very confused because I saw the patient. I sent him to conservative management, and I get this scan that said, "Please evaluate for infection and CSF leak," and I I was like. I don't remember operating on this patient. Well, let me open it. I opened up the chart and I sent this individual to physical therapy and um, uh, and uh, water therapy, which is what I tend to do. Um, the patient was not really content with that answer and wanted a quick fix. The patient had very limited symptoms on their back. They went somewhere else and they ended up with a three-level fusion, ended wow. up with an infection and a CSF leak. And a CSF leak is when the, uh, the, the bag that the nerves are in uh, gets a little bit of a tear and it needs to be repaired. Now, this patient at this point um, now is infected. Now could end up with a much worse uh, issue as meningitis. And who knows what their future lies ahead of them right you know for something that in my you know in my opinion would have been resolved with some conservative therapy
1: right no i agree i mean that's that's it's a very very disturbing trend i have one gentleman who had a one level fusion at age 30 that he did not need long story short he ended up with 29 surgeries in 20 years nine major infections he ended up being fused from his neck all the way to his pelvis i mean it was just a nightmare beyond words Well, Mark, thanks for your time. I appreciate this. On the next episode we're going to do here in a little bit, we're going to discuss um, sort of the evolution of your surgical technique and how you deal with the stress of being a physician and and how that affects your performance. But I really appreciate this and your perspective and we'll be talking some more. So I appreciate your time.
0: Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on the show.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Hanscom and Dr. Moisey and I want to remind our listeners that we'll have another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom next week, and hope you'll join us. And in the meantime, remember to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com.
0: Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.